We now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism to read Lord's Day 14, which you can find beginning on page 528 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 14. There we continue to deal with the doctrines, the articles of our Christian faith, now focusing in particular on the conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and how it benefits us. What do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus, he is also the true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Following the ministry of the word, let's sing in response hymn 24, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And this is not a product of human speculation. It runs counter to all human expectations and reasoning. Scientists extract many secrets from nature, insight into many processes, Involved in conception and birth have also been the focal point of their uh, attention and research. And nevertheless, scientists have to acknowledge their limits when it comes to talking about the conception and birth of Christ. What scripture says about this can't be explained scientifically. We are simply called to accept what the Bible says about this is true. It's a miracle of divine grace that we're talking about. And there are people that have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. And they tend then to go with science and then reject the revelation of God, the almighty God who created this world we live in, who laid the foundations also for scientific enterprise. Now, why does it matter when people reject what the Bible says about the virgin birth? It matters. Why? Because unbelief concerning the virgin birth undermines the entire doctrine of salvation. It creates confusion about who the Son of God is and how we are saved. Just think about it. What if, for example, Joseph really was the father of Jesus Christ? 
Well, then Jesus Christ would perhaps be a special person, but certainly not more than a human being. Then he couldn't possibly be the eternal son of God who took upon himself true human nature to be our mediator. We would no longer be able to echo the words of scripture together with the catechism. The doctrine of the virgin birth of our Savior is not a marginal teaching of Scripture. It's not something that we can just set aside as being not really that important. Some theologians have tried to deal with it that way, but the consequences of such an approach are deadly. We need a Savior. We need a perfect Savior. One who has the power to bear the eternal weight, the eternal wrath, the weight of the eternal wrath of God, and who is able to save us from it. No sinful human being could ever bear such a burden for us. And so we praise God for giving us Jesus Christ as our Savior. He is the Son of God, and at the same time, fully human. And how do we know this? Because the Bible tells us so. And so we come to the theme for this afternoon. Confess the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is, first of all, a testimony to God's power, and secondly, a testimony to God's love. Confess the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a testimony to God's power and a testimony to God's love. The incarnation, beloved, is a continuation of God's work among his people. In Old Testament times, God's people could rejoice in his presence in the tabernacle. He was present there in a special way. And later on, in the course of the history of God's people, God was present in the temple. He really wanted to live in their midst, to be with them, as he promised. And this foreshadowed a greater reality that was evident in the coming of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Satan tried to prevent Christ from coming. The Old Testament describes how the devil tried to get God's people wiped out by their enemies. And he also led them astray in an effort to bring God's judgment down on them. However, the Lord showed his mercy to his people even after exiling them from the promised land because their sins had become too grievous. After Jesus was born... The devil tried to get him killed by means of Herod. All efforts failed. In Jesus Christ, God was present in the midst of his people in a way that had never happened before. 
The Apostle John testifies to the greater riches of the New Testament dispensation. We read in John 1 verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle John uses an interesting verb regarding Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God. He dwelt among us. More literally, it could be translated as, he tabernacled among us. And that reminds us that the Son of God took upon himself human flesh and blood. He was literally God with us. He was not among his people in a tabernacle or temple made with human hands. The term referred to his body. A real body, also one that was perishable. People talk about how you can't understand someone unless you've walked in their shoes for a while. The Son of God did that for us. He took upon himself human flesh and blood. He went through the various stages of life, Born as a baby, he grew up. He knew what it meant to be a pre-teenager. He entered the teenage phase. He became a man. And boys and girls, you know what this means. This means that your Savior knows what it's like to go through those various periods of growth. He knows what kind of challenges you face. Jesus wore the clothing of his day. He had a body that could feel tired as he wore out sandals walking through the land of Israel. The incarnation, and that word means that Jesus took upon himself flesh and blood. The incarnation presents us with the love of the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all involved in this demonstration of love. The world had turned away from God. It had become filled with hatred toward him. And nevertheless, God the Father was willing to send his only begotten Son into this world. He knew that people would not hesitate to nail the incarnate Son of God to the cross. He knew that would happen even though Jesus Christ did nothing to deserve such treatment. And we're part of that sinful world. By nature, we're no better than others. And the Holy Spirit was also directly involved in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Just think of the words of the angel Gabriel who said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, 
the Son of God. In this way, the Virgin Mary was able to become the mother of Jesus Christ, God's Son. The Holy Spirit ensured that Jesus would be completely holy, untainted by sin, although having a sinful mother. And so the Holy Spirit, who is one with the Father and the Son, cooperated in our salvation. Together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son is true and eternal God. The Catechism describes Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, to distinguish him from us as adopted children of God. As the author of the letter to the Hebrews puts it, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He was with the Father from eternity. And he let himself be sent to be our Savior. What a self-sacrifice. Consider the glory that he left behind. He let himself be laid in a manger as a helpless baby. The incarnation was only the beginning of a life that would end on the cross. And the eternal Son of God came into this world for people like you and me. What a miracle of divine love. We can't fathom it but we're called to confess it faithfully. Throughout the centuries, the church has had to struggle to maintain this confession. It has been undermined and attacked from the first century onward. You can even notice this in the New Testament. Just think, for example, of the first and second letter of John. A heresy had arisen in those days. There were false teachers at that time who wanted to eliminate the confession that Jesus Christ is both true God and true man. Apparently, they accentuated, they emphasized his divinity at the expense of his human nature. They denied that the Son of God had come in the flesh. The New Testament gives us an impression of the struggle concerning the two natures of Jesus Christ. It shows us how important our confession about this is. God doesn't give us his word to tire us out with it. He instructs us with a view to our salvation. Although our Savior was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he had a human mother. He could trace his descent back in time all the way to Eve, the mother of us all. The promise of his coming began in paradise. There God promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And centuries later, he promised to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Savior would be a descendant of Abraham. Scripture traces this line for us. 
And after God's promise to Abraham, we read about the blessing of Jacob to his sons in Genesis 49. It includes the words, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And that promise makes it clear that the Messiah would be born of the tribe of Judah. After this, the Lord gave King David, who was of the tribe of Judah, the promise, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The Apostle Paul speaks of God's son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now note the emphasis on Jesus Christ being a son of David. And this means that not only Joseph was of the line of David, because Paul talks about him being of David according to the flesh. What does that tell us? It means that Mary must have been of that line too. Jesus was not only a son of David by law, that would be the connection with Joseph, He was a son of David according to the flesh, meaning as to his human nature. The word flesh highlights his, his human nature in its weakness. Our Savior was born with a body that was subject to hunger, thirst, pain, disease, all that we experience in our day-to-day existence. The Catechism stresses that he was like his brothers in every respect. And the expression reminds us of Philippians 2 verse 7, where it is said that he was born in the likeness of men. What does that mean? It means that he didn't look different from other people. If you could have seen Jesus, you would not immediately recognize the fact that he was divine. His body was not essentially different from yours or mine. He had human flesh. He had to eat and drink like you and me. He could get tired and have to rest. He had human emotions. He could be happy and laugh or sad and cry. Jesus Christ was different from us in one very important respect. As the Catechism puts it, he was without sin. There's a good reason for emphasizing this. We need such a mediator. Being without sin, as indicated in Hebrews 2 verse 17, he was in a position to atone for our sins, Bearing the wrath of God in our place. And so remember the divine origin and the true humanity of our Savior. You have to know who he is before you can trust in him for your salvation. He is God in the flesh. Truly God and truly man. At the time of his resurrection from the dead, it came to light in a glorious way that Jesus Christ is indeed the unique Son of God. 
Paul highlights this in Romans 1 verse 4, where he says that our Savior was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And what this means is that the resurrection of our Savior was a declaration of his divinity. Divine power was not only necessary for the conception of our Savior, divine power was also involved in causing him to arise from the dead. The resurrection confirmed his uniqueness as the only begotten Son of God. An angel of the Lord was sent down to roll away the stone from the tomb. And this was an official act, a public testimony that our Savior was far more than just a man. Confess the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a testimony to God's power. It's also a testimony to God's love. This is our second point. God gave us such a Savior because of his love for lost sinners. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved from damnation, from the condemnation that would be ours outside of Jesus Christ. But what does believing in him involve? We need to believe in him in order to be saved. So what does it mean? It means that we must acknowledge him according to what scripture says about him. That involves confessing that he is truly the incarnate son of God. Confessing his divinity means we are honoring him as he presented himself to his people. A failure to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the son of God would not only dishonor him, but also the father who sent him to be our savior. Christ himself warned the Jews, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And dishonoring the Son also means rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is connected to the incarnation of God's Son. He was sent by the Father to save us from our sin. Salvation is only promised through him who was willing to come into this world and die on the cross for our sake. On the basis of his sacrifice, we receive the forgiveness of sins. And we also trust that as our resurrected Savior, he sends out the Holy Spirit to bring about the miracle of rebirth and the renewal of our lives. Beloved, never take that work of salvation for granted. Consider the extent and the weight of our sins. Boys and girls, have you ever done something wrong and wondered, where did that come from? And the grown-ups among us will have asked themselves the same question. If they sinned or when they sinned, we all sinned. Where did that come from? There have been people in the history of the church who have claimed that our sins are the result of learned behavior. 
You saw someone else do it, and so you imitated that. You learned it from them, their bad example, whatever. You're just copying what you saw somebody else do. That's not what the Bible says. We can't just blame somebody else. It's their fault, not mine. Think of Psalm 51 that we read together. What does that psalm make clear to us? The sins you commit bring to light what is in you. Think about that. Our greatest problem is the corruption in our heart. That's where everything comes from. None of us were born as an innocent baby. We've all been born as sinners. It's important to see the connection between the sins we commit now and the sin in which we were conceived and born. Otherwise, our view of sin will be too limited. We'll tend to see our sins in in a limited way, in an isolated way. They just sort of pop up without there being a connection to something in us. Our nature, David makes clear in Psalm 51, is sinful from conception onward. And that's why it's so important that our Savior's work covers everything. It reaches back to our conception and birth. It extends to the end of our lives here on earth. And how we need this grace. Maybe you think of this or that sin in your life with great regret. You feel God could or should condemn you for it. You wish it had never happened. And you think you would be very much happier if it had not occurred. But you're wrong. Even without the most prominent sins in your life, you would hardly be less condemnable. You don't become more worthy of salvation by having less sins. Sin comes forth from our sinfulness. We're conceived and born in sin. And this thought doesn't appeal to many people nowadays. Many like to talk about the innocence of a baby. They reject the idea of a child having evil inclinations from the very beginning of its existence. And nevertheless, this is the language of Scripture. Just think of the words of King David after he repented of his sin with Bathsheba. He reasons from his sinful deeds back to his sinful heart. And then he confesses the extent of his sinfulness. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Sinfulness was there at the very beginning of his existence. The Lord opened his eyes to see the extent of his sins and misery. David wrote many psalms. He was a spiritual leader, a tower of strength, a beacon in the darkness for others. And nevertheless, he learned by experience that his piety could not save him. There's only one way of salvation, 
God alone could give it to him. So he cries out to God for grace. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And David's confession is very instructive for us. Sin continually wells up in our hearts too. We need to acknowledge this before God. David's prayer should also be ours. It's in scripture for us to learn from it. The Lord guarantees that he will answer such a prayer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Why is that? It's because our Savior humbled himself from his conception and birth to his death on the cross. He did that to cover the sins of our whole life with his innocence and perfect holiness. We are still sinners, but Christ gave his life to atone for our sins and to deal with our sinfulness. And let this good news replace any darkness and heaviness of spirit within you. If we really want to rejoice in this salvation, we need to believe what our creed says about Christ's incarnation. This must become our personal confession. Beloved, it can be useful to have deep discussions about the doctrines of Scripture. But it can be dangerous, too, if that's the whole extent of the matter. Doctrines must have their place in our hearts as well as in our heads. Don't just talk in general terms about salvation. Learn to talk about your salvation in a personal way. And the Catechism shows us this in the way answer 36 is worded. First, it speaks about our mediator. But then it takes a personal turn. It leads each one of us to confess personally that Christ, with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sin, in which I was conceived and born. And so confess your faith in fellowship with the whole church and personally. That's the way to keep the right perspective on the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This miracle of divine power and sovereign love was meant for you and me, individually and for us together. Sometimes people might say or think, I wish I could begin my life over again and avoid the sins I've fallen into. Oh, we all know that's impossible. It's unnecessary even to go down that trail in our thoughts. Even if that would be possible to avoid past sins, or if you could, starting today, avoid any sins you made in the, did in the past, guess what? You're still going to sin again. Might be something else. It doesn't change the problem. What is the solution to our sins and misery? Look to Jesus Christ. He led the life that we should have led. He did it for us. And as a result, every day, 
There is forgiveness for us. Every day, there's a new start for us. Lay the burden of your sins and sinfulness before him in prayer. And thank him for the gift of forgiveness. By grace, we may have a life of thankful fellowship with God. Beloved, salvation by grace is being proclaimed to you again today. And looking to Jesus Christ in faith, you may be sure of your salvation. Treasure that glorious gift. The grace of God in Jesus Christ extends to the very end of our lives. You may feel eternally secure when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's what the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is all about. How rich we are, brothers and sisters. Don't we deserve to perish because of our sins and sinfulness? Shouldn't the disasters and terrors of this world be personal omens for us of the future revelation of God's wrath? They would be if we lead unrepentant lives. We have riches that many scorn. Unbelievers prefer to go even deeper into the deep bog of sin than admit how dirty it makes them. But we may know of the forgiveness of sins and the complete cleansing of our lives. We receive this by faith in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Hold on to that confession. The account of the miraculous conception and birth of our Savior is a wonderful testimony of God's power and love. Amen.